my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. It may not surprise listeners to hear that when I was in school, I was something of a nerd, a studious child. And I was also pretty socially awkward. And I couldn't quite figure out why I had this disconnect with the other kids. Because see, I, I was smart. I was real smart. I knew I was smart. I loved studying. I loved reading. And I thought that was cool. I thought reading and studying and knowing stuff was really like hip, not hip. I guess I didn't know what hip was, but I thought it was neat. I thought it was neat to know stuff. And I wasn't shy uh, when I knew things in classes. Like if I knew the answer to a question from a teacher, I would raise my hand. And I raised my hand a lot because I thought, you know, I liked other people that raised their hands. I thought when you knew a lot of things that made you cool. Again, probably don't have to explain that this is not the way that the other kids seemed to see me. And I couldn't quite get my head around it, really, honestly. Like, I I, I did, I mean, like, I, I got it that I wasn't cool, and I, I sort of put together that maybe it was the raising my hand all the time that did it. Um, but I, I honestly didn't understand, like, why it isn't a cool, good thing to know stuff. I still think it's cool and good to know stuff. And a while back, I read a study that blew, you know, what's left of my mind about this. But then a while ago, I read a study that just put all of that into crystal clear um, perspective. It was a field study, field psychological study, and they took a real class and they put two undercover research assistants in it. I think it was a college class. That's where they do most of this stuff. And one of the students was a an Anna-type person who knew the answers and raised their hand and got real excited about, about with class. And the other student was a more, you know, a sardonic individual, let's say. That person, this person um, sat in the back of the class and made fun of the teacher, made fun of the person who was answering all the questions, uh, kind of said, you know, smart-ass things under their breath. I am sure you're familiar with this type as well. And what the researchers found, they asked the, the other students afterwards, 
about their classmates. They're, they asked, who do you think uh, is the smartest, most capable person in the class? I guess probably a series of questions that were more subtle than that. But what they discovered is that the other students thought that it was the smart ass that was the more intelligent person. They sort of wrote off uh, the person who actually knew all the answers in favor of the cynic. Cynicism is a pose that can make you seem really smart. And sometimes cynics are smart. The original cynics don't seem to be lacking in intelligence. But today's show is about cynicism as a pose, cynicism as an attitude, and what happens when we get cynical about the institutions that serve us. Our guests today are Kathleen Hall Jamison. She's an American professor of communications and the director of the Enberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of The Spiral of Cynicism and most currently the author of Cyberwar. Our second guest is Jay Rosen. He is a journalism professor at New York University and the author of PressThink.org, one of my favorite blogs, where he writes about the American press and its ordeals. Jay Rosen, Kathleen Hall Jamison, cynicism. Coming right up. I'd like to welcome to the show Kathleen Hall Jamison. Hi there. Hi. So I want to talk about your book, The Spiral of Cynicism. Do you think you could briefly explain what that spiral is? Well, first, it's a book co-authored with Joe Capella, who's my colleague at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania. And the spiral is one in which press coverage of political content focuses on the tactics that are involved, the political advantage or disadvantage that is gained or, or is lost, but not on the substance. And as a result, creates an environment in which voters don't hear about the substance and they think that the candidates are engaging in pandering because all they're doing is engaging in tactical manipulation. And then voters thinking that, they hear more media accounts of polls that suggest that the public is cynical. Having made the public cynical, the polls doc- document the cynicism of the public, which reinforces the idea in polls that the public is cynical, and you get a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is a political environment in which the public is needlessly cynical about politics. Doesn't mean some cynicism isn't warranted, but rather that substantive alternatives and the substance that candidates are offering and the, dis- the differences they actually plan to make and will make if they've given the chance to govern are obscured. Because the tactical frame, the frame that focuses on horse race, on appearance, on who gains advantage and loses it without the substance, activates cynicism, and in the process, it depresses learning. And that means in campaigning, we divorce campaigning from governance. And on policy, we minimize the likelihood that the public understands how somebody is trying to address a real problem. I think there's two, more than two, but at least two interesting things in what you just said that I kind of want to dive in on. One of them is this idea that if you tell the public they're cynical, they'll get more cynical. Is that what you're saying in there? If you act as if the public is cynical, Uh and when you poll the public, you ask questions that are based on the assumption that what the public is doing is making assessments based on their cynical assumptions, you feed a cycle in which there's less substance inside the news cycle for them to engage with. And as a result, you increase the likelihood that they see politics cynically. 
Right. You're kind of training them to look for horse race coverage, right? We're training them to be political consultants instead of voters. And so in the process, what we're doing is telling them how a candidate is tactically adapting to try to win votes and not what the candidate will do if the candidate is elected and will govern. And candidates are doing tactical things to win votes, and it's not irrelevant to know that, but it should not be the primary thing that we learn from reporters. It should, in fact, be a distant, distant secondary thing. And I do think this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I saw that when I was doing research to talk to you because it was hard to find current numbers about this because they write about it so much. (laughs) Like... We write constantly about cynicism and lack of trust. It's just literally like an overflow of articles about that. And in the process, we are training the electorate to think that it's normal to behave this way right. and, and to decry the normality of it while we're doing nothing to put in place the kinds of problem-based discussion that would help us see we do all agree about some things and that they are problematic and the solutions that are being offered And understanding them to increase the likelihood politicians can actually act to produce those solutions, even when they might have costs. And so one of the byproducts of this is a pattern of governance in which candidates are less likely to take the chance of explaining the trade-offs and the costs. And as a result, don't take those risks and problems go unsolved. And then they get criticized for not explaining their policy too, right? Like Then they get criticized for having policies that the public understands nothing about. Right, right. Uh, for, let, me, and let me give you a, a concrete example. If you go back over, say, the last month, and you read and watch everything with a search being Green New Deal, so your, your search frame to find things, you're simply going to search Green New Deal. Now, read everything and watch everything and tell me how often someone takes the time to explain the key elements in that proposal as opposed to how many times someone talks about the tactical advantage or disadvantage of favoring or opposing it. And so we have a great deal of commentary that says, this is going to fracture the Democratic Party. This is creating a problem for Democratic contenders. They're having to say it's aspirational. What what does that mean? That means it looks as if they're pandering to the left, when in fact what they're trying to do is avoid this difficult political situation. In the process of all that talk and all that writing, You don't know that there are very specific proposals there that would actually be consequential. There are trade-offs involved that are very real and that there's a vision of a future that this legislation could advance us toward, even if not every element in it was adopted. But if the public doesn't have any idea that it's there, the public can't even tell us, I might like some of those ideas. Maybe rebuilding the infrastructure and increasing the amount of clean energy would be a good idea. I also feel like with this particular example, it's like doing a design critique of the fire truck while there's a fire happening. You know, like <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it, it's it's a little like like saying it appears to be a fire truck, yeah. but it's probably not. You know, they have those fire truck kits, and so it probably isn't really a fire truck. Do you think it's a fire truck, John? Well, no, Jane. I don't think it's really a fire truck. Well, it may be. You notice that it's red. In the meantime, you've burned the house down right. across the street because you haven't mobilized the ladders and the hoses. Right. The other thing I wanted to add is that you're saying we're, you're, you know, we, the media, turning uh, voters into like a nation of political consultants. I first noticed this on my first presidential campaign when I traveled John McCain in 2008. Like, that I would, I would, I quickly discovered it was somewhat pointless to talk to voters at rallies <laughs> because mm-hmm. all they would do is just repeat back to you 
the analysis that you just did, kind of, mm-hmm. right? So Sarah Palin is authentic, and John McCain is a maverick, and uh, Obama stands for hope and change. It was like, it w- was maddening. And so that was in 2008. And now I feel like we have to do the big reveal, which is that as, as, as current as your analysis feels today, you actually started making this analysis. You wrote this book in 1993? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> this this, this phenomenon and and people often look at this and assume that political coverage always had a tactical focus, and it didn't. Mm. If you go back and read through the the news transcripts from 1960 and 1964 and 1968, you do not see this there pr- practically at all. You see it occasionally. But we basically have created whole generations of reporters now who don't remember that time and place. And in fairness to reporters who are in a very difficult situation where the news cycle is very rapid, in which the level of expertise they're expected to hold is very broad, it's easier to engage in this kind of coverage because you don't need any knowledge to do it. Mm -hmm. You can simply say whatever someone said must be gaining tactical advantage somehow, what would that reasonably be? And that's anybody's opinion. Yeah. Uh, and in the process, you haven't had to say, well, is that a plausible foreign policy position? What is the problem being addressed? How do the candidates differ from each other? What can we learn from an analysis of how these kinds of proposals have worked in the past when implemented? So we displace a whole set of questions that the public could intelligently engage and are more relevant to the actual public's well-being. Because for practical purposes, these are the policies when enacted or not enacted will or will not affect their lives. And I'm as as concerned about the policies we don't enact because the public never gets onto the same page to say, yes, there is a problem, here are the alternatives, and here's how we can get to a best solution that we can agree to across the aisle. Like with the Green New Deal, it would be nice to know, well, would these actually work, right? Like, yes, and, and it would be nice to know if you asked the public after describing each of the elements in the Green New Deal, do you adopt do you want us to adopt that or not? Because what we often find is that when we take the political coverage back and just strip it back to the details that are underlying it in policy, there's a high level of public embrace of ideas that are never even being discussed. The public doesn't even know they're on the table. They've just made their judgment of, for example, the Green New Deal based on the political and tactical discussion, which means depending on where you are ideologically, you think you know you oppose it or favor it, but you can't tell anybody what's in it. Um, Taxing the rich is another one that I think comes up on those surveys that most people tend to embrace, but is just sort of written off. Like you can't actually talk about that because then that's class warfare. And that's a tactical analysis, right? Not Well, and, and yes, and the, 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 the move is to what is the disadvantage of ever saying that you favor this politically, right. as opposed to asking, what are the problems that one needs to address with revenue? And how are the available means of getting revenue? Because you could also cut spending, although we are loath to do that. You also could <laughs> increase taxes, which we, which we are also loath to do. But you could have a completely different discussion if you centered this not in whether or not one is going to raise taxes or lower taxes, but what is going to be accomplished by doing that. First, what's the economic theory behind the increase or decrease in taxation? Because there is one. When what has increased or decreased in the past, what do we know about the actual outcome? That is, what happened to the economy? Because there are theories there that are proven or disproven by our history. And then, 
What are you going to give up if you take the revenue out of the revenue stream by engaging in a tax cut? What are you going to get if you increase taxes? Now, all of that would be a substantive discussion about the desirability of doing X rather than Y or doing X at all. Right. Instead, we simply say raising taxes. Well, you can't win saying you're going to do that. And as a result, that's not tactically a useful thing for anybody to promise. Now you've got sound bites back and forth about it. And we've never helped the public to understand why there might be something we could need revenue for, but there might be alternative ways to get the revenue. Are they desirable, such as cutting spending? And I, speaking of pulling back, I actually want to pull back a little bit to, to 1993. Did this seem like a new phenomenon at the time? Is that why you were interested in writing a book about it? Because you, now you, you've spoken of the Halcyon 80s. <laughs> Mm-hmm. As a time when there was some more substantive coverage and also even in the 60s. So in 1993, were you looking at this and thinking, oh, no, God, we better, this, this is something we need to alert people to? We were seeing a, an increase in the amount of tactical coverage as we moved through the 1980s. So we began to see a rise of it in 84. Uh, by 88, there was a lot more of it. Remember, academics are always slow. Right. So by the time we figure out something's happened, it's probably been around for a pretty long period of time. So it wasn't simply the, that 92 was raising the issue because we were seeing it there, but that we were seeing it as a pattern of coverage that had differed from what we had seen in the past. And we're testing in the book. The book is actually an empirical book. It's not simply an historical book. We were testing the hypothesis that I actually advanced in an earlier book called Dirty Politics, which was about the 88 campaign, that when you engage in a tactical framing, a tactical coverage structure, that you are likely to be activating cynicism and depressing learning. It was an hypothesis. We didn't have empirical evidence for it until we put in place the experiments that are reported in Spiral of Cynicism. And in that case, we tested the effect of actually taking real coverage of a mayoral election. It was the Philadelphia mayoral election. And having the reporters who had done the tactical coverage, both in broadcast and in print, that race was overwhelmingly tactical in coverage, had them rewrite and redo their stories to be problem-solution, took the tactics out, and instead talked and included in the same stories what was there in terms of the substance. And it was out of that test done across the nation in what are called controlled field experiments, a very tight way of knowing, that when people who knew nothing about our mayoral race watched the tactical coverage, their cynicism was activated, their, their learning was depressed, and they projected that the candidate who won would not keep his promises. He had just been pandering. The people who are in the solution structure, problem solution, didn't project that at all. Their, their cynicism was not activated. Their learning was higher. And when they saw a debate among the candidates, after they'd been exposed to this tactical coverage over a week-long period, they were more likely to see that the candidate was offering solutions that the candidate would implement. And some people have said to me, while we were putting the process together, well, but since candidates don't keep their promises, of course, the cynics were being realistic. Well, no, they weren't. The mayor who was elected was Ed Rendell. He kept his promises and was considered a very successful mayor. So because we were testing a real election, but after the fact, we were able to say, no, the inference he wasn't going to keep his promises was wrong. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge you up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. 
The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. You can view easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your phone. You can also view collections such as the 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners with friends like these a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at crookedfriends.robinhood.com. That's crookedfriends.robinhood.com. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. I've been doing some reading about cynicism in general, and one of the interesting through lines through a lot of research is that people assume the negative take is right. That's like our, it's a, it's a negativity bias, right? So as soon as you yep. introduce cynicism, that's going to be people's preference moving forward. Like you know, It's also, even before you've introduced it, we have a negativity bias. So we're more likely to, to grab hold of the negative information that is out there. And that's why attack ads per dollar are more effective than advocacy ads. We're more likely to remember it quickly. It's more likely to be able to anchor our attitudes, and it's more quickly recalled. So that human disposition, which is probably there because if you're wary about negative information, if you're aware of it, you're more likely to be vigilant in your environment about things that are a threat. So you're probably more likely to live long enough to procreate. Hence, our ancestors had a negativity bias. (laughs) But into that, you drop the coverage structure with that human bias already sitting there, and you activate it, and it gives, it has a priority it doesn't otherwise have. Because we have a second priority as humans. We pay attention to things that are salient to us. So if you, if you tell me what issues matter to you, and then separately I pull up coverage that either has that issue in it that matters to you or has a different issue, I can predict that the issues that you told me weeks ago matter to you are more likely, if I just spread it all out on the table, to be the ones that you pick up. That's a salience bias. And it matters because, obviously, things that are salient to you are things you care about. So in elections, they should matter. Well, that bias should be sitting there, too. So when you hear about a problem and a solution that are relevant to you, that should have attentional value as well. And so it's not simply that the cynical structure has attention value. It does, but so does the alternative structure. If journalists can find a way to tap into things we care about, and we should care about clean water, clean air, having bridges that don't fall down, having nuclear power plants that are safe, you know, having an economy that provides jobs, all those things we, sh- things we reasonably should care about, articles that tap into that should be able to successfully compete in the marketplace as they tell us how the candidates are going to try to deliver in those areas and what the alternatives are. And that's what we found with our problem-solution structure. We didn't have any trouble getting people to read or pay attention to it. You just had to structure the story so that people saw the relevance. So what happened? (laughs) It just kept happening, right? So why— 
can you do you have any theories as to why the spiral just kept going down? Like, if it's not actually that it, it's the, what the audience demands. Like, if the audience, because I think a lot of journalists will tell you, oh, well, policy stuff is boring. People want to read about, you know, personalities and tactics. That's, like, more exciting, right? Part of the thing that we've managed to do across time is we've managed to teach the electorate that these are the things that are important, and we haven't managed to teach the electorate by putting forward kinds of journalism that will involve them in the problem-solution structure, haven't managed to teach them that that's what they should be looking for and giving them the satisfaction of having consumed it. So there's so little of it. We haven't had any practice in getting used to it or finding out that we like it. And when people say, well, we do the great big takeout stories people don't pay attention— They're talking about really fine pieces of extended journalism. What we need to find is shorter-form journalism that sets up problems and solutions on a routine basis so that you don't have to invest your entire morning in reading the big, long, brilliant journalistic piece. And the journalists who do those pieces, by the way, are wonderful journalists. The question is, can we start the public out with a digest that has the elements and then tease the public into more extended encounters with the deeper form of journalism. And I think the answer is we have a whole group of journalists right now who are so pressured that they don't have time to think about how they translate campaigns into the problem-solution structure on a routine basis. And if we could take this huge amount of talent that is out there and increase the likelihood that we got some of those shorter-form stories that did it, Across time, we could develop the same kind of attitude that we aptitude for it and the attitude toward it that we have toward making folks into campaign consultants and having them feedback consulting tips instead of insightful reasons for voting when we talk to them about citizenship. I've often observed on this show that I think um, a universal basic income, one of the ways that it would help democracy is that it might allow more people to pursue journalism and pursue journalism out of passion rather than like just needing to get a paycheck. Unions might help too, uh, journalism unions as well, because I do think that there is a labor issue here, right? Just what can you turn out? How fast can you turn it out? How many people will click on it? It that's the structure that we've now created for journalists to to do their work in. And that doesn't doesn't easily translate to the kind of thing you're talking about. I mean, I think it could, but doesn't doesn't really doesn't seem to be happening. Now, we also are sitting in an environment right now in which the old journalism models are failing. Yeah. And the commercial pressures to find a new model are very real. And innovating in that environment to try to move to a more substantive structure is risk-taking. But you are actually seeing journalists do it. Um, So if if you take a look at the kinds of things now that you were able to read in Axios, for example, that's the kind of short form journalism that over time can teach people about what a problem solution structure looks like and why it matters. And I love the idea that you're given a little note that says, There are 253 more words. Do you want to read them or not? Because it essentially says, and it's using the digital capacity, I get to make a choice. I get to choose to read more in more depth. And the stories are being structured so that I can either take the shorter form and it's what I need to know is there, or I can learn even more consistent with that structure. That's how ultimately you create the appetite for that way of knowing and that way of learning. So you're seeing innovation. 
You're also seeing platforms that are specializing in trying to make things graphically real to us. You know, the, the masterful graphic, which telegraphs something that's really important in very, very digestive form and potentially also in interactive form, is another way of breaking through the traditional story structure to telegraph the importance of a problem and its nature, particularly across time in the place of interactive graphics. So you're starting to see innovative journalism try to develop an, an, an appetite for this alternative. And the question is, can it get hold, take hold? Can it become profitable? Very talented people are, are making the bet that the answer is yes. I hope they're right. Of all the things I expected to hear you say today, praise of Axios is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Because I see them as the practitioners of one of the most cynical forms of political analysis. Really? Tell me. The be smart analysis. Oh, I love be smart. Oh, oh my God, Kathleen. I, wanted, I, I wanted us to agree on everything. I, uh, and, and, but the reason I love it is because it's an invitation for you to say, this is the voice of these people telling me something that matters. Now, does it matter if what you're asking is, it is, is it a smart thing to know? So I like that way of framing people looking at something. But their actual political coverage, when they use the Be Smart framework, is all tactics. I know. So, but it's it's separate from the rest of the story. So, if you if you look at what are you getting up to that point, <laughs> the the traditional journalistic structure would make the whole narrative that. Now it's sitting on the back end, and if I want to indulge my political junkie part of my identity. I can take it there and I can say, okay, this is their view of that being smart. Fine. Now I have that conversational tidbit if I actually want it, but I haven't lost what they've laid up before that, which on average is more likely to be laying up an issue with some depth than in many other places and doing it in a relatively short form. I'm, I'm telling myself that I just haven't read a lot of Axios's like issue coverage. That that is that that is hmm. the missing thing here. That I only read their political coverage, and their political coverage is is really, I promise, it is pretty tactical in nature. Okay, like like the the infamously, you know, Jonathan Swan sent out a a tweet telling saying how he was excited to share the fact that Trump was going to be was considering uh, revoking birthright citizenship. Like mm-hmm. he got a lot of pushback on that because. He made getting that piece of news the thing that we he was paying attention to and that we should pay attention to, rather than ending birthright citizenship as a thing, even if it could be done. Okay, but now look at Axios AM, April 10th. Big thing, how your care would change under Medicare for all. Right. Oh, okay. That's... I- Oh, That's right. a problem okay. with an identifiable solution. And then they talk about Bernie Sanders. Oh, oh. So, I mean, the I'm, I'm not saying it's the ideal journalistic forum or that <laughs> you know, it, you couldn't be improved, but rather that in a world in which so much starts with the tactic and then drops whatever substance into that frame, starting with something that says, oh, here's a proposal there's a problem being addressed. Here's how the person can address it. Is for me refreshing. Okay. All right. Okay. And let's 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 actually talk a little bit more about what's changed and, and what you think about where we are today. Because you've named you know some things that you think are promising. 
But in the scope of history, looking back to where you first wrote this book and then where we are today and, and how your book and your thesis still feels so current, are there big differences between the media environment of, of back then and today in terms of this spiral of cynicism? I mean, I know yes. the media has changed, but— Yeah, this... yeah. and, and the, the changes in the media have all worked in the direction of tactical coverage. So we didn't have 24-hour cable talk focused on politics across multiple you know, mass outlets— at that point, multiple like-minded communities engaging and feeding us, you know, quasi-news content through clear ideological points of view. Um, so, you know, we, we were writing essentially in an environment in which you still had a mass media structure, and we were seeing it being infected by this. Now what we have is a whole industry that is built around it, and in part because it's so inexpensive. Mm-hmm. So if you want to put four people on a set— you don't have to actually go out and do any reporting. Just throw a topic in the air um, and let them fight. Put a couple on each side. Put somebody who's ostensibly neutral in the middle um, or not. Um, and see the extent to which you're going to get conflict. And now you've got a definition of much cable news, uh, which on most days I wouldn't call news. I would just call it cable opinion talk. And if you say, what is it that they are using as the dominant way of seeing, it's tactics talk. And so... We have more of it now in more places, and we have a second phenomenon. Uh, when we wrote that book, you weren't a partisan 24 hours a day in your media world because you couldn't envelop yourself in a partisan media world 24 hours a day. It just, the media structures didn't let you do it. Now we are more likely to be getting cues that we are partisans all day mm-hmm. inside our media structures. We pick up our cell phone there we've got the cues. It's, the feed is coming to us. We open our computer. There we've got it. We turn on cable. There we've got it. We're enmeshed in a world in which we've got a partisan frame and a tactical frame coming at us 24-7. And so if the worry is that we're too partisan too much of the time, we need to think about being citizens of the same country, sharing the same goals, and trying to accomplish the same objectives for at least part of our lives. So many cues are telling us, no, you're a partisan and a polarized partisan, and you put the tactical frame on top of that, and you make it even less likely that we're going to focus on problems that we share, that we need to find a way to address, with ideology being a way of looking at different ways of addressing it, but nonetheless, ways that are substantively important and can be advan- can be looked at in terms of their substance, not their tactical advantage. You brought up two things I definitely wanted to get to. One of them is the role that partisanship plays in this. And the other is actually something you kind of uh, acted out in, 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 in talking just there, which is that you said CNN isn't really news. People are now cynical about media, right? Like not only are we they cynical about the government and about politicians and about, you know, why policies get enacted, this cynicism has now become pervasive. And I feel like one of the things that's happened is that in doing everything through a tactical frame, we have trained readers and listeners and watchers to assume that the media has a tactical interest as well. I agree with you. And declining trust in media as an institution is deeply problematic because we have protected our media structures constitutionally with the First Amendment to ensure that they can hold government accountable. And that's government broadly construed. And the assumption in doing that is that there's important information and an important accountability function that is carried by these people who wear the the label press 
as they enter our body politic. And you want trust in them to be high, and you want them to be focusing us on things that matter. And the press still has a capacity to set an agenda. So the fact that we have not dealt with what is usually called infrastructure, an odd word, we need to find a way to say bridges, roads, water piping, etc., to make it clear to people that that actually consists of things that matter in their lives. But the fact that we haven't dealt with that, even though both Republicans and Democrats agreed that there is a need. The candidates on both sides in 2016 agreed that there was a need. People in the Senate and the House agreed that there was a need, and we haven't dealt with it. Well, part of that responsibility is those politicians, but part of it is the press not using its agenda-setting function to remind us of the nature of the problem and to say that it's not simply Flint, Michigan. It wasn't simply a bridge that collapsed in Minnesota a number of years ago. It is, in fact, a pervasive problem across the country that affects our economy and affects us. So when the press is doing something else, the important thing is something isn't getting done that could be getting done with that time. And I'd like more time with the press setting the agenda to say these are problems we need to, adri- we need to address and then holding politicians accountable for addressing them. And when they promise they're going to and they don't, they shouldn't get to show up on the, on the talk shows and not be asked, why haven't you delivered on that promise? But I feel like there's a the problem here, this sort of tactical framing all the way down kind of problem, which is that I wonder if journalists started doing more coverage along the lines you're suggesting, issues, policies, et cetera, we have trained the public so well to look for tactical advantage. Would would they not just maybe see that as like, oh, you're covering that for this reason? Yeah. Like, I feel like we've reached a point where I don't know what cynicism in a circular firing squad looks like, but... <laughs> I agree with you. The problem is we've schooled the public into thinking it's knowledgeable about things that matter when it's knowledgeable about something that largely doesn't. And in the process, haven't schooled the public in in focusing on things that matter and getting ways of seeing these things that lend themselves to legislation as an arena for solutions and executive action as an arena for solutions. And so the the, the the big challenge is finding a way right now in an environment in which there is not the trust that we once had in media to have that as an institution perform that role again. But if you look at, for example, viewership of the news hour, you've got extended substantive exchanges inside the news hour on policy issues. How does the news hour manage to hold those audiences? Now, it's not a big, wide national audience. But it's a respectably sized audience. There is some appetite for this, and there are ways to do it well. You also mentioned partisanship, which I we cannot end the conversation without talking about that. Because as much as I agree with the sort of structural criticism of media coverage and how we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot, um, there has also been a concerted effort by some members of society to encourage people to distrust government and to encourage people to distrust the media. The conservative movement, has was that's one of its basic tenets. How much of a role do you think that plays? It clearly plays a role. Um, and some distrust is good. I mean, you, you don't want players who are powerful to be uncritically trusted. You know, the question is, when have we crossed the line from having a healthy skepticism to being cynical and, as a result, not able to see substance when substance is there and not be able to act on it. 
But is that a problem? Yes, it is. And looking to alternative ways of constructing audiences rather than working simply within the existing structures is, I think, part of the ways, way we're going to find a way back out. And blogs are among, among this. Podcasts are among this menu. I mean, there, there are alternative media venues now that are emerging that do deal with policy issues with audiences that care about them. Can one then expand their reach out becomes an important question. And how can one on issues that do matter increase the likelihood that they are presented inside the structures about which people are cynical in a way that decreases the likelihood that they are seen cynically? I'm a big believer in finding ways in which narratives that are representative can be used as a news vehicle to get us to see big picture. And one of the problems with the Flint, Michigan narrative is that news did not successfully situate it into the broader problem of securing access to water that is is drinkable in a healthy fashion on a reliable basis across all of our systems, including those in cities whose infrastructure was built more than 100 years ago. So they did a good job covering the instance. They did not do a good job generalizing to get us to see that it's a wider scale problem, not of the scope of Flint, but nonetheless within the domain of the concern of Flint elsewhere. And as a result, something that governments at some level need to be addressing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Article sponsors this show. They are a furniture company that is entirely online. They make beautiful Scandinavian-inspired furniture, and I have several items of it. And I got these items sort of knowing that they would be a sponsor. And at first, it was a little bit of a problem because uh, we work with an interior decorator sometimes. And I couldn't meet up with them. And I was like, oh, are we going to you know, not match up if I get this stuff? And I bought a lamp and a side table and a chair without talking to my professional. And then they loved it. They absolutely loved it. It fit in with all of our other furniture. And the design professional told me I did a good job. So this is about both me doing a job and how awesome the article furniture is. By eliminating the layers of traditional retail, they're able to keep their prices low and the quality high. There are no showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. And they're also serious about making shipping easy. No matter how many items you buy, every order is shipped at a flat rate fee of $49, and in-stock items can be expected in two weeks or less. If you need some help getting set up, Article has options for in-room delivery and for assembly assistance. Article puts customers first with a 30-day return policy and amazing customer service. And they are offering my listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim that, go to article.com slash friends. That is all it takes. Go to article.com slash friends and the discount code will automatically be applied at checkout. Article.com slash friends to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. If you've listened to the show, much at all. You have heard me talk about Framebridge. I am a huge Framebridge fan. What I love about Framebridge is it kind of lowers the bar to sharing a special moment, to making a special moment something permanent that you can put on the wall. Think about how often you Instagram. Think about how often you like a photo on Instagram. I don't know about you, but actually, I don't like every photo on Instagram. For some reason, I, I've, I have a bar in my head about what photos I will like. Um, and, and think about the photos of your own that you put on Instagram. Aren't 
at least some of those worth putting on your wall, like to commemorate a night out with your friends, um, an especially cute pet, an especially cute child. All of those things are worth remembering. And you know what else? They're worth giving away. Mother's Day is coming up, and I suspect that it would be a really cool gift to just like take some Instagram photos of your family and make them available to your mother to admire on a full-time basis, not have to look at her phone. I know my mother-in-law, I actually just thought of this. She doesn't listen to the show, so I can tell you the idea. I'm definitely going to do this for her. Like, she likes Instagram, but you know, like, she's not native iPhone user. I think she's going to like having pictures of us in actual little frames more. So how do you do this magic? You go to framebridge.com and upload your photo. They will also send you packaging if you have an actual physical photo that you want it framed instead. You can preview your item online in any frame style. You can choose your favorite or get a free recommendation from their talented designers. The expert team at Framebridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use the code FRIENDS. Get started today. Frame your photos or send the perfect gift for weddings. I just, wedding season is coming up. Birthdays and special events. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code FRIENDS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Again, that's framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. Jay Rosen is a journalism professor at New York University and the author of PressThink.org, where he writes about the American press and its ordeals. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you so much, Anna. So I'm excited to talk to you. I've been reading PressThink for a long time, and you have made quite a name for yourself as a media critic. I would guess that most of my colleagues uh, know and are often annoyed by you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I feel like the thing that you've talked about that's been the most salient for me, the thing that you've talked about that has been the most helpful for me in terms of thinking about the relationship between the media and politics and the media and its readers, watchers, viewers, is the idea of the cult of the savvy. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that for people? Well, this um, began when I realized I didn't agree with anyone on the question of media bias. I didn't. I didn't agree with the right that uh, that the performance of the news media was overwhelmingly tilted towards liberals. I didn't agree with the left that the, the corporate media didn't allow for any real freedom of the press, and I didn't agree with journalists that um, they were nonpartisan creatures who just told you the way it was. Um, and uh, because I felt as I observed political journalism that there was definitely a point of view there and a, and a kind of a, a slant, but it didn't necessarily map onto left-right politics. And so I developed this critique of the savvy style in political journalism, which I think is the dominant uh, style. And... Um, to me, it represents a kind of a a, a wrong turn in uh, in journalism, in taking some vague point in the nineteen seventies or eighties, and 
The savvy style um, is very familiar to people who consume a lot of political news. It's about winners and losers. It focuses on strategy and tactics. It admires what is um, smart and ruthless. And most of all, it admires people who are winners. And um, it, a lot of it is about winning. Like, what is a winning move? What is a winning appeal? Um, what's a clever uh, way of marketing your ideas? Um, and I felt that w when you see um, political pundits uh, and political journalists taking apart a recent development, mostly what they're doing is performing their savviness. And not only is this a ubiquitous style, but there's something extremely insidious about it. Uh, so perhaps we can talk about that too. Yeah, so we just spent some time talking to Kathleen Hall Jamison about the spiral of cynicism. Mm -hmm. And to me, the cult of the savvy is a more kind of textured, maybe more critical description of what she calls tactical framing. Mm -hmm. Because so tactical framing, I feel like she sort of uh, talks about in although she has opinions about it, she talks about it as sort of like a value neutral way almost like it's, it's when you talk about strategy. Right. Yeah. And I, I think the cult of the savvy adds another layer to that description. Well, right? yes, uh, I feel it does. Um, and it's related to cynicism because for me, uh, cynicism is, is a, a sort of deep-seated feeling that what's true doesn't really matter. And in the savvy style, what's true doesn't matter, what's just doesn't matter, what's right doesn't matter, what's What's effective and winning is what really uh, counts. And what's insidious about it to me is that um, it kind of severs the journalists' solidarity with citizens in this sense. The people that we're invited to identify with in a savvy analysis are the professionals in politics whose job is to win elections or advise candidates or read the polls and figure out what works. And I felt that the, the savvy style is a natural result of the, uh, the fact that political journalists like to hang with and they learn how to think like the professionals in politics whose job is to manipulate the electorate and win elections. And when you identify with people like that, you begin to look at the world through their eyes. And even more consequentially, you teach the audience to look at the world through the eyes of the political professionals rather than feeling like a citizen voter yourself. Uh, and to me, that's the most insidious thing about the savvy style. And I feel like this differs a little bit from just talking about tactical framing, because you're positing, and I, for what it's worth, I agree with you, that not only are people doing tactical framing, but they're putting a value on winning. Like there's a sort of active bias towards uh, portraying the winner sympathetically, towards portraying winning as being like the thing that matters mm -hmm. like, and admiring winners. Yeah. You know, like, and you're right, like it, it, then that bias also gets transmitted to consumers of the news. Yeah. And which is why, like, for instance, we can we could talk about 2016 probably for hours and hours and hours, but you definitely see it there, right? Like, I think, because because 
it's almost like the, the pre-existing condition of the cult of the savvy was fertile ground for Trump, right? Yeah, because, because yeah, I mean, this all of this helped to prepare uh, the ground for Trump, um, in part because journalists, I think, lost the sense that they have something they have to defend. Um, and they're recovering it somewhat since Trump's election. Um, but when you're when you see your job as um, uh, just analyzing spin, figuring out who's winning, um, describing what a winning strategy is, um, criticizing those who's, who who aren't savvy enough to win. Um, it's almost like you are inside a game. And that's another term that I have for this sensibility. It's a game schema and uh, closely related to like uh, ESPN's College Football Saturday, where um, there is an, an analysis of each game and who's likely to win and what the Alabama has to do to defeat Crimson. Uh, and there are a lot of links between uh, sports and contests like that, which are essentially meaningless to our future. And politics discussed that same way. And it's more than just a focus on tactics. It's, it's, it's a whole world unto itself. And it is the, the milieu of the political journalists, but they've also taught audiences how to be savvy. And lots of people who are not journalists take the same kind of attitude towards politics now. Well, it's the fetishization of winning, right? Yep. Like, it's not just, like, looking for the winner, but, again, putting value in that. And I, I feel like when I look back at 2016, what I saw was journalists admiring Trump's savvy, yeah. right? Like, even when they criticized him, even when they uh, talked about the awful things he said and did, it was sort of in the context of, but look at how look at how he's playing this, right? Right. And then— uh, Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, her her tactics were always kind of discussed discussed as like, oh, she doesn't do this very well, right? She's trying so hard, mm-hmm. but she doesn't actually do it very well. Yeah, so, that she's not a master a of the game the way yeah. the reporters are. Um, right. Another thing that's going on here uh, is um, I don't think journalists are totally aware of this part, and this is one of the reasons why um, – I'm I'm annoying to them because I, I try to point out things that they're not necessarily thinking about and don't don't see as important. But um, another another reason that for this style is that I think journalists are always trying to separate themselves from closely related but different actors and interpreters in politics, um, and so they. They have to, for example, separate themselves from political activists on all sides and also from academics who uh, sometimes uh, overlap with their territory. And one of the ways that they separate themselves from activists or people with a declared ideology is by saying, well, you know, that's very nice what you believe and maybe you're right in the, in the abstract, but it just isn't smart politics. It's not a winning mm-hmm. strategy. Um, and this is how they try to build their authority as experts in politics without having explicit political commitments on the one hand, like activists do, or without having 
um, sophisticated bodies of knowledge and years and years of study the way a political scientist or a, uh, a sociologist of political systems might have. And this is where the college football metaphor really breaks down for me. Like, I'm, I'm a huge college football fan, by the way. Mm-hmm. But the real big difference here is that in college football, you have a very specific number of people that are actually on the field. <laughs> Right. Right? And we know who they are. We know who they are. They have numbers and names. (laughs) Yeah. And also, there's a real win or lose, right? Like, there's not like, well, he won the morning. Like, Alabama won the morning, right? Mm -hmm. No, there's a game, (laughs) has rules, and you either win or you lose. Um, And also, we the commenters are commenters, and they're situated as shut, and they're not on the field. Right. And, and so, it's terrible what's happened here <laughs> is that like to try and make the metaphor work a little bit. What the thing is in society, we're all on the field, right? That's right. Like there is no off the field and journalists keep pretending that there is. Mm-hmm. And another uh, point along the same lines is that when the game is over the next day, the world is pretty much the same. <laughs> Um, And in politics, it may not be at all. People's lives are at stake. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are there are wars fought. There are there are crashes. There are there are uh, social problems that go unaddressed. Um, And it's it's not a game, but it can be treated like a game. And then to to develop one of your other points, which, which is very sound about who's on the field uh, one of the problems with journalists standing back and taking a savvy outlook towards the winners and losers is that very often they are creating the conditions of politics. So, you know, recently we we had this very strange dynamic where journalists are remarking on how the narrative of the bar letter has already been formed mm-hmm. without acknowledging that they are themselves the ones who formed it, Right. Uh, and that's another problem with the savvy style is that, in a way, the actions that journalists take lose their name and, and lose their owners in this style of analysis. Yeah, there's this weird way that whenever journalists talk about who won the morning or like how a narrative is playing out, it's actually, to, to skip to a different sport, it's an own goal. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You're admitting we got played if you talk about who won the narrative. Like you're saying like and we played exactly into their hands. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And every every once in a while you'll get a strange sentence that that uh, comments on this phenomenon when they'll say like, um, uh, are we going to be talking about this tomorrow? (laughs) You know, something like that. In, in which they're trying to reflect on the fact that what they're talking about is itself uh, proof of a political strategy's uh, wisdom or something. Uh, and they get caught in like a Mobius strip or like a loop where they're trying to reflect on actions of their own that they control as if they're naturally occurring events. This episode is brought to you by Hask. Hask hair care products are used on more Hollywood film and TV sets than any other brand. Hask offers high-performance formulas at affordable prices, including shampoos, conditioners, deep conditioners, shine oils, and dry shampoos, all designed to treat and repair all hair types. And they're made from quality ingredients sourced from around the globe. Hask these days is all about second-day hair. 
with its new collection of Hask dry shampoos, and you are covered no matter what your hair type is. My personal hair type is thin. (laughs) I have a lot of hair, but each individual strand is very thin and very straight. And my hair is longer than it's ever been. And I have discovered if I want it to like not look stringy and gross like the Girl in the Ring movie, uh, then I need to not wash it very often. And I use dry shampoo. Even if my hair is clean, I sometimes use dry shampoo. And the Hask formulas, I, I mean, I've actually tried all of them, even though they're for kinds of different hair types. Uh, They all smell really good. Um, There's biotin, coconut, charcoal, and chia. Yes, chia. They all provide long-lasting absorption to leave your hair fresh and clean, even if you skip a wash. Each Hask product is formulated to meet the needs of your specific hair type. And all Hask formulas are free of aluminum, sulfates, parabens, using the pronunciation guide they've given me, phthalates, and they're also gluten-free, although you probably still should not eat them. They are also cruelty-free, and because of their ingredient-inspired fragrances, they smell incredible. Try Hask Dry Shampoo for yourself. You can find it on Amazon.com, and you'll save 15% off when you use our special coupon code at checkout. It's a little different than usual. Pay attention, my friends. It is 15WFRIENDS. That's 15WFRIENDS to save 15% off Hask Dry Shampoos at Amazon.com. And for more information on Hask's complete line of hair care solutions, please visit HaskBeauty.com. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Today, we are sponsored by European Wax Center's Axe the Pink Tax campaign. The pink tax is the extra amount of money women are charged every year for basic goods and services. And it adds up over $1,300 every year. Well, it's in fact about $1,351 every year. I actually think it might be more. Maybe that's just me. It's charged every time you buy anything gendered, basically. Baby bottles, canes, healthcare products, clothes, dry cleaning. You probably actually noticed it in dry cleaning because women's blouses are like three times as much to get cleaned than men's blouses. I would be in favor of a campaign that just changed every gendered men's item to like the same thing in, in women's. And what about if we made every men's item pink? Do you think they start charging more for them too? That's probably not going to happen. The way that we're probably going to have to do this is get people to charge less for women's products. It makes sense. I mean, we get paid less, right? So what can we do about this? Part of me would like you to do the radical thing of just refusing to pay it, like, at the store, but you will probably get in trouble. So instead, European Wax Center is giving you tools to do something about the pink tax. They are known for empowering confident women, and their tools are available online at axthepinktax.com. It will give you things to do and people to write to help make this less of an everyday headache for all of us. See for yourself at axthepinktax.com. To use another family of metaphors, I wonder, did you happen to see Political Playbook's Game of Thrones playbook, the Westeros playbook? I did not. Sorry, no. So for those that don't follow either, although if you're not watching Game of Thrones, I mean, who are you? Um, So Politico's playbook is the... One of the best examples in the field of savviness, right? Like sure. it's look it's at the, the name defining, playbook. Playbook, right? It's the defining article in a lot of ways. If you want to know what the cult of the savvy looks like, you look at Politico's playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So what they did to celebrate the final season of Game of Thrones is they did a Westeros playbook. Mm. And it was like, you know, what's Cersei Lannister doing? And like, who's going to be the, you know, who is the Night King? And like, watch out for Tyrion. You never know what he's going to do. And it was all like, haha, funny, funny, you mm-hmm. know. But I found it infuriating. Because? Because for me, what it did, it wasn't like, haha, look at how easily we can apply the tropes of political journalism to a piece of entertainment. It was admitting, look how we've all along been applying the tropes of literary criticism or film criticism to politics. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> and and uh, I think a big reason for this is um, that our political journalists are pledged to a, a kind of nonpartisan style of discourse about politics. And they have to constantly assure us and themselves that they are not on this team and they are not on that team. And this isn't something that they can say once or twice. It has to be continuously demonstrated in the way that they conduct themselves. And part of the attraction of the savvy style is that it sounds and feels like it is neither nor. Who's going to win is not an ideological question. And so when you ask it, you are advertising how unideological you are. And the same is true for what's a smart tactic and what's a sound strategy and what do the polls say? All these questions are by their nature non-ideological, and that is why they appeal to political journalists so much. And they are about style, right? Mm -hmm. And they're about like what narrative appeals to us. Which is why it totally makes sense to apply it to Game of Thrones. (laughs) That's the natural place for it Mm -hmm. is to apply to a piece of art, you know, because that's an invented world that we're not a part of. Again, we're not the players on the field. That's right. And also, there is no like healthcare crisis in Westeros, right? (laughs) Like there's, there's not, well, there is, but, you know, it's because winter is coming. And if the infrastructure, as far as an infrastructure crisis, well, there's one big infrastructure crisis, which is the wall. But so the author has created this very limited world where we have these specific problems for the people in charge to address, right? That's right. We don't have to think about like the serfs and the peasants. I'm, I'm sorry to go. I'm sorry to go off on this, but like it just it infuriates me. <laughs> yeah, and so it's a world without consequences. Whereas politics, right? And is it's not fun. Like it's that. supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, it's yeah. supposed to be fun. Like, it's supposed to be the thing we care about is who wins and the good guy and the bad guy. And it's completely inadequate for talking about politics. And But I, I, you sort of alluded to this, and, and now let's sort of get back to good guys and bad guys and, and players mm-hmm. in, on, on the field. Because Trump has somewhat disrupted that, right? Yes. Like Trump has forcibly pulled or tried to pull some of those players onto the field or made them realize they're on the field. I think so. I think I think in many ways the three years so far of Trump have have been kind of like a crisis for the savvy style um, in a variety of ways. Um, one is the sheer volume of lying, which has <laughs> has forced journalists to not only describe lies as lies or simply say the president said this and it is untrue, which happens pretty much every day now. Um, but they've, they've, 
realize that if he can get away with these, this volume of lying, it kind of makes what they do irrelevant. So they're they're dimly grasping that that um, they have to uh, almost make a stand in some ways against this. Uh, the other thing that's happening is that he's attacking not just the press as enemies of the people, which we hear about all the time, but he's attacking and trying to undermine trust in all the democratic institutions. And I think journalists are, are dimly aware that what they do won't matter if um, if all elections are rigged, if there is no real justice system, if uh, everybody in the intelligence community is uh, corrupt, if everything the special prosecutor says is really uh, a lie, if the if the entire world is fake and phony and rigged and and uh, and false, then why would you pay any attention to the news? And I think these kinds of connections are starting to be made. And I think even though they don't say it this way, journalists kind of realize they're in the fight of their lives, which is why I was so fascinated by this sentence from uh, Marty Barron, which I've written about several times. We are not at war. We're at work. Mm. It's in some ways that that's true, and I understand the popularity of that idea that we're not going to let him throw us off our game and we can't react to everything he does and we're not going to be positioned as the political opponents to Trump and all that I understand and I agree with. But in some ways they are at war, and I think they know that. Mm, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, sometimes I wonder because, like I said, this, this show's loosely organized around the idea of cynicism. Mm-hmm. This particular episode, I should say. Maybe the whole show is. I don't know. Um, and I had been thinking of the cult of the savvy as, ki- as a kind of cynicism. But I wonder, actually, if the practitioners of it, the worshipers at the cult of savvy, aren't actually kind of naive. Yeah, there's a deep connection between a sort of surface cynicism and naivete. You can have both. Because um, they think, seem to assume that things are going to be okay. Yeah, that's actually exactly. Sort of my <laughs> yeah, it's, that, that's what it is. It's like you can you can practice the savvy style as long as you're confident that um, we'll still have our democratic institutions. You know, we'll you'll still have a job uh, when the election is over. Um, if the Reds are in this time, then the Blues will have it next time, uh, and the system works uh, and it's relatively stable. Uh, and so we can we can analyze the game because uh, we we kind of know we're always going to be okay. Well, what if we don't know that? Then the savvy style sar- starts to look like an obscenity, not just an affectation. And I feel like I see that obscenity happening. I mean, and and maybe it's because they can't even cover the war on democratic institutions without it being. A savvy take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they 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 talk about Trump's war on the press as a tactic. Right. Um, <laughs> this is what his base wants to hear. Um, right. It's, it's right. worked for him so far. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it means like, do you really understand the urgency here? <laughs> if you're still critiquing the bullet as it comes towards us, you know, like. What? Where? Where do you, you? know, How can we communicate? Like this isn't just a style. This isn't like 
a tactic. This is okay. Sure, it is a tactic. I guess yes. His his base does want to see that, but it also means like we have this incredible increase in violence, right? Like, yep. I feel melodramatic saying this, and perhaps that's because I still have some savviness left to me. But like, the only time I have felt frightened for my personal safety as a working journalist has been at Trump rallies. Yeah. I never expected to feel that as a, as a journalist working, covering U.S. politics. Totally. And where you really see this um, come to the surface is when savvy journalists, like for example, the most recent one was John Harris in Politico, um, tell us about uh, the actual relationships between um, Trump and reporters. Um, and they um, they they report on this with a kind of note of irony, um, seeking to inform us that what looks true isn't the actual situation. So it looks like Trump is attacking the press all the time and that he regards journalists as his adversaries and his hatred for them is projected at them and it and it whips up uh, his um, his supporters but uh, the savvy journalists say actually he loves journalists and he's he's obsessed with his image in the press and then Harris went one step further and said and he calls them all the time and he He's always on the phone with them and he wants to know what they think. And um, they actually have this friendly, um, intimate relationship with him. And and wow, haha, isn't that funny? He's attacking us, but really he loves us. And I mm. almost puked when I read that. <laughs> Not that I'm saying it's untrue, but that it's delivered in this kind of tone of, well, it looks this way, but let me tell you the inside secret. It's actually he's on the phone with us all the time. You know, it's also a really good dramatization of something that we talk about on the show every once in a while, which is that naivete is actually a privilege. Right? That's right. Because he's talking about privilege. Mm-hmm. He's talking about a very specific kind of privilege, which is that I know the president. But in general... Journalists who exp- who are able to treat this as though everything is going to be okay said this with Kathleen. They're probably white. Mm-hmm. They're probably men. They're probably straight. They're probably Christian, or at least come from a from a sort of centered, you know, community. Mm-hmm. Educated and yeah, and they they don't have any they don't have any sense of precariousness. They've never felt a precarious moment in their lives. I think that's true. And and I think that's why the game metaphor and that that atmosphere of a game uh, is so offensive to so many people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is offensive. I'm thinking about something else I'm annoyed by, (laughs) which is maybe it's just the flip side of the naivete, which is that I hate democracy dies in darkness as a slogan, so much. Yeah, why? Like, because I feel like it's a performative thing. Like it's melodramatic? Like is melodramatic, sort of. But also, like, it's it's situating, like, the Washington Post. Good paper. Let's put that out. I have a subscription. I love it. I have friends who work there. But it's positioning it as, like, as the Post is the defender of democracy. Mm-hmm. As journalists are the defender of democracy. Mm-hmm. 
And they're not. I mean, they're part of it. Yeah. But it's an us, not a you. Like, we're all defenders of democracy, or we have the potential to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that's a very good point. And that's what I meant by um, the, that that the savvy wears away at at uh, any sort of solidarity. Because what what that style is really doing is it's it's taking the 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 highly attentive public and separating it from the the rest of the the people out there mm-hmm. and then tutoring that small portion of the electorate in the ways of the political professionals and getting them to admire those who are the best at the game uh and when you do that you are are severing these bonds that connect citizen to citizen and that include the journalist in the political community. Uh, and I think, I think that's what you're saying is that they sort of lost that uh, uh, connection. This is why um, the, uh, the savvy style is so frequently uh, said to appeal to political junkies. That phrase, political junkies, tells us a lot. Right. That's mm-hmm. that Chris Eliza, for example, called his blog the fix. Why was it the fix? <laughs> because it's for the junkies who need it. Right. And the political junkies are the people who, who pay sort of excessive attention to politics, who follow it as a game, who know all the players and who love this sort of inside analysis. But what is that? That's five percent you know, of the electorate. Uh, and to, and we have 95% of political journalism is pitched at 5% of the electorate. And as someone in recovery, I kind of almost want to just quibble with using the metaphor of addiction here, too. You know, like... Well, he did call it the fix. I know, I know. And I, it's not you. It's just like I have a lot of loved ones who have been affected by the opioid epidemic. And the thing is, what I want to say, like, I, what I almost want to say is that you recover from that. You know? Right. <laughs> like, and also... Like, that is, I mean, it's not like it's a human failing, but it's, like, acknowledged, like, we don't want to have addictions to things, right? No, we don't. That's not a good thing. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Because you lose your autonomy that way. Exactly. (laughs) You know, it's not a bad, it doesn't make you a bad person. Firmly believe that. Mm -hmm. But we seek to, you know, evolve to our higher self without the aid of Addictions. Right. You know, addictions keep us from experiencing the world. Totally. It's a screen that we we don't have to deal with the world because we have this screen. Yeah. Yeah. I knew there was a reason I really didn't like Chris Liza. I mean, there's many reasons. (laughs) But I hadn't really connected the drug metaphor. (laughs) Well, the very common reaction to Saliza... um, shows that people do see through the savvy style. They do, although I feel like that's the 5% of the 5%. Maybe. You know? Yeah, like, maybe. Pe- people who, probably everyone listening to this podcast hates Chris Liza, mm-hmm. but that's because we're we're subsetting out like a very particular audience. And he know? is popular. That That is why he is yes. on the air. He, he does draw viewers and he draws numbers at CNN, and I'm sure he did at the Washington Post as well. Yeah, it's like a it's a cliche, you know, a joke to the point of cliche that other political journalists and other like savvy people don't like Chris Liz's criticism. But yeah, he's the one pulling down six figures, right? Yeah. Like, 
He, he, so a lot of people must like it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe this gets us to a, a place where we can start to, to look to the future or mm-hmm. look for solutions. Alternatives. Alternatives. Mm-hmm. What, what, are, what is there? Like, what, what is a good citizen to do? Well, I have an alternative for the way elections are covered that I that I want to mention because it very much opposes this this style. And I have been talking about it for years. I've been talking about it um, since I realized that 2020 coverage was probably going to be as bad as 2016. Um, and it's called the citizen's agenda style in election coverage. So here's how it works. First, you have to identify the the community or part of the public that you're trying to inform in your election coverage. The second thing you do is you go out and ask those people, what do you want the candidates to be discussing as they compete for votes? That's the key question. What do you want the candidates to be discussing as they compete for votes? And if you can ask that question enough in enough ways to enough people, um, not just relying on the first answers, but going out and, and, and making sure that you've, you've heard people and and that you're right and developing authoritative answers to that question, then you can synthesize from their answers a kind of agenda, which is simply a priority list of what people want the candidates to be discussing. Then you take that list and then that becomes the template for your election coverage. And the mission of your election coverage is to get the candidates to address the issues on the citizen's agenda. And it also provides a way for the press to know if it's doing a good job, if it's winning. Because if you can get an authoritative answer to what do you want the candidates to be discussing as they compete for votes, and you're right, then those things are going to start to show up in the candidates' polling as well, and they're going to have to start addressing them. And this method, the citizen's agenda method, um, is not new. It was tried in the 1990s in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's, it's, it's a known thing. It was, um, it was kind of lost to press uh, practice, in, I think, because the kinds of people who cover elections preferred the savvy style. They didn't want to do it this way. But it, it's a, it is definitely an alternative, and I think um, someone should try it in 2020. And um, if I have my way, someone will. That's very much like the kind of coverage that Kathleen is suggesting, very much centered on what do people want and also what are the real problems. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, journalists can problems? find out what the real problems are. Like, that's actually something that we can do. We have the tools, right? Definitely. Like, we can find out if there is an opioid crisis. We can find out if there's a healthcare crisis in general. Yeah. And then we can find out, and we can tell people, do you care about this? Maybe you should care about this. Then, then you try to get here. the candidates to talk about the things that you know people care about. It kind of happened a little bit. Half of it happened in 2018 where people in the field um, found that the biggest issue on the minds of voters in 2018 was healthcare, not Trump. You right. know, and they learned it by talking to voters. And, and I'm just saying that a little bit more systematic um, use of that insight could provide a different template because you can't defeat the focus on winning. You can't defeat that the uh, hidden or let's say implicit agenda of the savvy style without having a better agenda to replace it with. 
Um, and that's what the Citizens Agenda style or approach is about. You started out our conversation in, in the, talking about the cult of the savvy by saying you didn't agree with either the left or the right's criticism of media bias. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm with you on that. But I also feel like there is an ideological piece to how this played out in our culture, which is that the right, I think, successfully convinced a lot of journalists that they need to be overly, you know, this side, that side. Like, yeah. there was a concerted effort. There was like a specific agenda. Yes. To, to do that, right? Yes. And it's working and it's still working. <laughs> Where do you see it? I'm curious as, a, as in, in your experience. Like, I'm thinking of just like how it happened. Like, you know, I first started covering politics um, under Bush and there it was kind of a soft power thing, right? It was just like um, drinks and, and dinners and um, reminding people that like, uh, you know, we're, you, you need to, you can't listen, you know, to 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 everything that the liberals say, like, you got to listen to us, too. You know, mm-hmm. we're, 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 we're the other side here. Like, right. literally, you know, like, playing it like that. But that can't, but that's not it, is it? Um, well, that only goes so far. I think um, several things are going on here. One is uh, Eric Alderman really coined a very useful phrase for this, which was working the refs. Yes, uh, and Although that, there are no refs, but yes. <laughs> well, the, you, you, working the refs posits that the journalists are sort of like the the refs. They're sort yes. of like the the, the cops in the uh, in, in the in the political dialogue, right? Um, and and you work the refs like a basketball coach. You complain to the officials that you're not getting the calls and. You're just trying to introduce a note of doubt in their minds. That's the that's the strategy of working the refs, um, and that has been successful, no doubt about it. But underneath that, there's something even deeper going on, which is uh, the Republican Party has used media bias and the idea of elites in the media um, distorting the picture of politics that most Americans get. Since at least 1964 and uh, Barry Goldwater's uh, nomination. Um, But that way of doing politics in which you posit the existence of a corrupt elite that is preventing the real people from getting their voice heard has has grown from sort of like a, a tone or a style in the Republican uh, party's politics to the heart of Republican politics, to the, the heart and the soul of it. And as that has grown, the attack on journalists as biased has become central to how the Republican Party does politics now. And in a way, it's sort of detached itself from press performance and is is simply a, a pillar of uh, the Republican approach. And with Trump, he supercharged that or, or weaponized that even more. And so bias is no longer even a statement really about political journalism. It's um, 
It's central to the political appeal that the Republican Party makes to its voters. It is it is essential to keeping the Republican coalition together. And so even if the if the press completely overhauled its performance and 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 somehow like hired 50 percent conservatives uh, and and transformed itself into like a, a cross between Fox News and MSNBC or something, it wouldn't change because um, media bias is now a structural feature of what the Democrat, of what the Republican Party is. I feel like, in a weird way, um, journalists were receptive to the message of "you're not really representing America," and they were. They right? were. I can, yeah. I can. They. They're definitely. They still are. There's yes. still this weird um, uh, uh, willingness. To hear from a conservative uh, person and have have the accusation be like you don't really know real America, and it and it actually sort of gets into a, what is often an insecurity I think among these like good white liberal straight men <laughs> yeah. who are who are who ideologically probably are aware of the fact that they're white men right and also aware of their wealth. And it's like an insecurity of like, you're right, I don't really know the rest of the country. Yes. You know? Yeah, I, I, I guess. I think I've detected that. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it's, it's some sort of anxiety about being out of touch or an anxiety about being uh, lucky or fortunate or something. But they are definitely susceptible to that message. And the other thing I was thinking about as far as... Um, you know, positing this corrupt elite and having it be foundational, a, 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 a pillar of belief for the conservative movement, is that um, I was reading about psychological studies of cynicism. And one of the interesting things about it is that cynicism is appealing to people who don't know very much. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. it, it, it finds a much more fertile ground in people who are, who are ignorant of actual facts. Right. Like it and I think that's because it's sort of like this evolutionary thing, right? Which is that when we don't know, we should assume negative. That keeps us from getting eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, right? Mm-hmm. If we don't know the tiger is there, we should assume the tiger is there. Mhm. But it also makes us feel smart. Yeah, because it works for all situations. Mhm. And it's telling, like, the base Republican voter, you're smarter. Like, you don't really need to understand everything that's happening there. We're letting you in. We're telling you it's corrupt, and that's and that puts you one up on everybody else. Yeah. And um, this has worked its way into cynical descriptions uh, in the conservative movement about, about what journalists are. It's routine within the conservative movement now to describe journalists as— um, uh, Democratic operatives with bylines mm-hmm. uh, or um, party strategists with press cards where the attempt is to completely erase any distinction between journalists and um, a, a political opponents. And that is now routine among the conservative movement. And to erase the need to find out. Yeah, you don't need to know anything about them. You don't need to look at their performance. You don't need to read their work. You know, by definition, they are our political opponents. Yeah. And like, aren't you smart for realizing that you're, you know, you're, you're You're one of us. You're clued in. Yeah. (laughs) 
You're clu- yeah. It's a weird, like, it's a cult of the savvy. It's an ideological cult of the savvy, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, a savvy thing for conservatives, yeah. Like, the, real, the, yeah. If the really smart people know that these people aren't journalists at all. They're party operatives with press cards. Yeah. The really smart people know you can't trust anybody. Yeah. And, but if you don't trust anybody, you don't find anything out. So... <laughs> Ah, ah. Um, that's me miming, tearing my hair out. So. <laughs> it's frustrating. It's frustrating it, and it's depressing. It is. And that brings me to my final question for you. Are you cynical? Well, I'm getting more and more cynical. Yes. And I, this is something I struggle with every day. And I've been struggling with it a lot. Uh, lately, um, because I feel in so many ways that we can discover and work hard to try and bring to other people what's true, but increasingly it feels like it doesn't matter. And in a democracy, this feeling of what's true doesn't matter I think is closely related to another fact about our times, which is there's almost no accountability in our system. Um, There wasn't accountability for what happened in the run-up to the Iraq war. There's been almost no accountability for the financial crisis. Um, So many actors in the Trump regime are getting away with stuff with no accountability uh, and the more you see that, the harder it is to to uh, believe in reading the news and discussing what is found and, and trying to figure out who's uh, responsible. So cynicism is something that I, I struggle with, and lately I feel I'm kind of losing this struggle. Mm. And what does that mean for you? It means... For the first time in my career, I'm measuring the years until my retirement. <laughs> well, that's not so bad. No, I, I mean, mean, not compared to uh, the, the predicament others have. No, it's not. Right. I mean, and I'm also thinking, like, I get, I mean, I honestly get scared about a kind of dystopian Nightmare, which is is happening now. It's just uh, unequally distributed, right? Like, we're totally. already in a dystopian nightmare. It's just not everyone is experiencing it. That's and right. It's unevenly distributed. Um, yeah, and I, I, I worry. I, for the, like, I'll, I grew up, it took me a long time to understand. Like, it took me until 1991 for me to realize I had lived my whole life in the shadow of the Cold War. Like, mm-hmm. I knew about the Cold War, but... The fact that it lifted showed me that I had sort of like normalized that. And now I'm realizing I've lived my whole life assuming that American democracy would just go on. And I don't assume that anymore. See, that's what what being cynical means for me is that I also feel like I assumed for a long time. And we don't even think about the assumption. That's what assumption is. Yeah. You know, like, my country's basically good. Like, there's some flaws, but we keep trucking along. <laughs> right. Institutions are solid. They endure. Right. Who believes that now? I don't. 
Yeah. And I will say, you know, I speak for myself which, and maybe for you, which is that I have a relatively privileged upbringing. So I that naive belief, you know, is a, is a factor of that. Yeah. Um, but I feel like one of I've said this before in other contexts, which is that that can be a gift to have that naivete ripped away. Right. It is a gift to realize that. Your circumstances are and your institutions are fragile, yeah, because then you take more responsibility for them. So that is a gift. Um, but yes, this this whole conversation is a product of my privilege. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an educated person who can who's financially okay, and I'm going to be okay, uh, and. So it's probably taking me longer to see what an emergency we are in. But we are in a, a civic emergency. Thank you again. I'm, I'm sure we will speak again. All righty. And that's it for the show. I was going to leave the whole show on the beat that Jay and I ended on. But I decided that was unfair. Because while things are dark, there are reasons to hope even though hope is really hard. Cynicism is easy. Cynicism is seductive. Hope is a muscle, and you can train it. Working that muscle, working to realize the hopeful vision that you have, is the hardest thing of all. But that's what I try to do, and I know if you're listening to the show, especially if you listen to this point, you're working too. So let's walk this road together and remember to keep your strength up. Remember to take care of yourselves. Doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.